up to the spring series. The next lecture after this one will be Robert Rosenthal, the Rare Books Librarian of the University of Chicago. Press of the uh, founding of the press in 1972. That will be a lecture here. died in 1886, Richard Garnett, the keeper of printed books at the British Museum as it then was, only echoed what was generally recognized, that his passing marked the end of an era of links between the libraries of this country and of England. Henry Stevens' achievement had indeed been extraordinary. The self-styled Green Mountain Boy, Vermont, who responded to the beginnings of an interest in Americana with such flair that he virtually created and suddenly dominated the kind of market that he worked in for most of his adult career. But also made the British Museum one of the world's major collections of Americana and laid the foundations of collections at Oxford and at Cambridge that continued since have put Cambridge in the forefront of English universities for its American collections and who besides became a respected authority on the history of Bible printing who was one of the prime movers in the Great Caxton Exhibition of 1877. As a creative bookseller, Stevens has had few equals. And to say that his success lay in his ability to exploit the mood of his time is not to belittle his reputation. He was, of course, not the first bookseller to put out catalogues of American books or of Americana. David Bailey Warden, the United States Consul in Paris, but begun to define Americana in his catalogue of 1820, which
which was brought in toto by Samuel Atkins Elliott for Boston and given to Harvard in 1823. Booksellers on both sides of the Atlantic produced separate catalogues of American books and Americana. By that I mean early American books. But it was Henry Stevens that began to work more seriously in the field. But meanwhile, I remind you that Obadiah Rich's Bibliographica Americana appeared in 1835 to 1846. And the need for a rapidly expanded community with a history documented at best only in part, to record and to collect its past, and expressed in the long series of American local historical societies founded in the first half of the 19th century, Massachusetts first in 1794, New York in 1804, Maine in 1820, Rhode Island 1822, New Hampshire 1823, and so on were part of what Daniel Boston has called since the search for symbols of national identity and equally importantly of national community. George Templeton Strong's note in his diary of 1854, we are so young a people that we feel the want of nationality has become celebrated. It was written in the same year that Stevens launched his American, American bibliographer, printed in London and designed as the basis for a bibliographia americana a short-lived plan like so many of Stephen's other plans. It was finally scotched only with the appearance of Sabin from 1868 onwards. While to deal with more modern books, Orville Rohrbach's Bibliotheca Americana, listing books published since 1820, began to be published in 1852. Well, Stevens, responding to some of this feeling, made a living in his youth by copying or arranging to have copied state historical records New England to help him through Yale, and from the public record office in London to help him in London. But he made both his living and his reputation for posterity as a bookseller, and a bookseller particularly of American books. The political overtones of his career seem so obvious that they scarcely need to be stressed. And I remind you that his customers included Peter Force, the editor of the American Archives, founder of the National Calendar in 1820. Francis Parkman as well, but also that while much of his inspiration came from the group of New England historians, including figures such as George Bancroft, author of the Monumental History of the United States from 1834 to 74, and W.H. Prescott, Stevens himself did not at first appreciate the implications of what he regarded as a crazy rage for collecting books on America. The permanent importance of this craze emerged not only in the auction room prices over the next decades, in the sale of the Crown and Shield Library, the Humboldt Library, or much later, in 1884, of Henry C. Murphy's books, but also in the fate of libraries that were not dispersed. The Force Library, bought by Act of Congress in 1867, and so brought to the Library of Congress its first major collection of early American books. John Carter Brown's collection went eventually by his son to Brown University. James Lennox's books became one of the foundation collections of New York Public Library. The fact that Lennox was also a major collector in other fields than Americana in no way denies the political importance of these collections. They were as political in their promotion of national and ideological ideals as the libraries of Matthew Parker and Sir Robert Cotton in England in the 16th century, now housed in Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, and the British Library, respectively or of Colbert in late 17th century France, of Charles V in mid 14th century France. In all cases, in both hemispheres, modern attitudes tend to differ from contemporary ones, and the importance of the whole in fostering an attitude of national identity has sometimes become obscured by bibliophilic admiration or over-concentration on particular rarities. Modern library historians rightly emphasize the bibliophilic attractions of their subjects. But not infrequently, it's been at the expense of proper consideration of the intellectual, social, and cultural raison d'etre. Well, my reason for approaching my subject, which is principally Stephen's relations with Cambridge University Library over a very brief period of five or six years, in this manner, it's a roundabout one, is there were perhaps fundamentally different reasons for collecting Americana at this time in America and in England. 
Ian Willison in remarks which some of you may have heard, has sought some of the rationale for Pellitz's omnivorous activities in the British Museum in the mid-19th century. But I believe it is possible to take his conclusions a stage further. Benizzi brought to the museum an international approach based specifically on his Italian nationality, which made him acceptable to a generation of politicians brought up to admire most things Italian, and on liberal beliefs born of his own early life as a revolutionary activity in his own country. The pan-national nature of the 1848 crisis, the year of revolutions, stressed the international nature of radical opinion in mid-19th century Europe. But it was far from being the most dramatic demonstration of what had become accepted, thanks partly to a vastly improved communications. The emergence of the importance of the post of foreign secretary in the British cabinet, the expansion of England, England's imperial ambitions, the struggle for free trade, were all part of a movement which made practical Pellitz's successful plea to the British government in 1845 for a revolution in his adopted country's nearest approximation to a defined corpus of knowledge, the British Museum Library. The library's grant was more than doubled to 10,000 pounds, a fortune by mid-Victorian standards, but it still was not enough for Pellitz's enthusiasm. Inadequate or not, however, it did allow him to embark on a period which was unashamedly expansionist. The Oriental collections were redefined to comprise more than Hebrew. The foundations of the museum's vast Luther collection were laid. Modern Greek was put on a proper footing with the purchase of a collection from the Guildford sale in 1853. By 1872, after Benitzi's death, the number of printed books had grown overall from 300,000 in 1845 to over one million despite a recession that led to a supply of foreign books being almost completely suspended from 1849 to 1857. By 1858-59, organized purchases of current new books covered most of the world, with North American publications coming third only after the two traditional leaders, Germany and France. The library both sought to be definitive in the omnivorous nature of its acquisitions policy, and as a result, also had, be had become definitive in the sense both in that many of the criticisms leveled by Pinizzi of the inadequacy of various parts of the collection in 1845 have now been met. And that much had been done also to make the books more accessible than they had been to Carlyle when he wrote the, his work on the French Revolution. In other words, the British Museum Library had become the National Library in its universal approach to scholarly ambition, at least in the humanities, as well as the old administrative sense of 1757, the year of the founding of the British Museum. In no field was this more dramatically demonstrated than in the acquisition of both old and new American publications, a field slightly different from the concept of Americana in the Sabian sense that the museum already possessed European accounts, such as Columbus' letter or Smith's History of Virginia. The museum had bought modern American books in a moderate way since 1839, but Stephen's survey of 1845 carried out in Pernitzia's absence revealed the measure of what was not in London. Acting on Pernitzia's instructions to sweep America for you as you have done London for America, and to supply virtually all books published in America, Stevens had sold 10,000 American books to the museum by the end of 1846. By 1865, the year of Pernitz's retirement, Stevens had added over 100,000 volumes and made the British Museum's American collections the best in the world. The Bodleian Library began to buy American books from him on a much lesser scale in 1845. And while Cambridge was to be more hesitant, Stevens had nevertheless established himself simultaneously on both sides of the Atlantic, supplying American books, mostly perforce modern ones, to England, and sweeping the London trade for his American customers who sought both Americana and, increasingly, since Stevens so obviously dominated the transatlantic market, more general antiquarian books, especially in the case of James Lennox, whose interests encompassed Bibles, The Pilgrim's Progress, and Shakespeare, amongst much else as well. 
Benitzi's achievement was quickly recognized as unique, but the trend was not entirely new. The movement towards universal elementary education, the growth in leisure thanks to changes in society and increased mechanization, the expansion of the book trade at all levels, philanthropic, philanthropic movements towards social re reform, and especially in higher education, redefinition of university education, towards more liberal values and training, all had their inevitable effect. The 1850 Public Libraries Act is rightly taken as a watershed in English library history, but it's odd. While it was politically a considerable achievement, neither the fact that England lagged behind several other countries, notably America, nor that in the first 10 years of its operation, a mere 19 of local authorities took advantage of its provisions obscured. The Act's impact on the book trade was, in other words, gradual at first. And I want to leave it aside this evening. But I mentioned the 1850 Act to point a contrast with America, where the growth of the number of libraries of all kinds, and so the accompanying demand for books, was unprecedented. Stevens, as I've said, is remembered most frequently as the purveyor of Americana par excellence and latterly for his expertise in early Bibles. And not unnaturally so, since he was responsible for forming some of the greatest collections in these fields. But beyond these, and beyond his dealings with the more miscellaneous bibliophilic interests of a few men such as Lennox, I want also to emphasize his more general importance in a way that is more clearly illustrated than usual in his dealings with Cambridge University Library in the 1860s. On this occasion, he was concerned only incidentally with discovering new stocks of Americana, Bibles, and the more obvious incunables. These were not what his customers, who on this occasion were institutional rather than private, wanted. Many of the same forces that shaped the research collections of England in the mid-19th century operated also in America, if sometimes in a rather distantly related manner. And apart from the quest for a national library, Charles Coffin Jewett's Smithsonian report of 1850 forced the country to make comparisons between library and library, just as Panizzi and the government had done 10 years earlier in Britain. But it also, Jewett's report, drew attention to the conditions of near famine that, that faced American scholars, where, for example, Columbia College, as it then was, possessed, and I'm quoting Jewett rather than the library archives, less than 13,000 volumes, excluding pamphlets, and added about 120 volumes a year. Trinity College Hartford, a little bit further away, so less uncomfortable, contained 9,000 volumes. The University of Vermont, just over 12,000. Jewett calculated that Jean Offert's History of Chemistry, published in Paris, could not have been written out of American public collections even though at his count it refers to only 251 works. J.R. Bartlett, who published a report on recent progress in ethnology in 1847, could find less than 40% of the titles he needed in New York. Henry Wheaton, admittedly, had written his, his studies of international law in Europe. He was an enforced resident as a diplomat in, in Denmark, but here again, could not have done his work in this country. In 1849, Jewett's own eyes were set on the enhancement of the Smithsonian, Smithsonian Library where he worked, where the pattern was beginning to establish itself that has lasted until the present. Despite the modest extent of its library, he singled out the University of Vermont for its wisdom in sending, as he said, a learned, zealous, and active agent to Europe to buy the books instead of trusting their friends their funds to the cupidity of bibliopoles. While as librarian at Brown University in 1845, Jewett himself had scoured London, Paris, Berlin, Frankfurt, Leipzig, Rome for second-hand books, returning with over 7,000. In the absence of a fast mail for catalogues, though work needs desperately to be done on this, and in view of the great distances involved, as well as the individual needs and circumstances of each library, the agency system was easily the most effective, whether for British libraries buying American books or American libraries catching up with four centuries of European printing. 
transatlantic careers of Stevens and library agents like him and their impact on scholarship have yet to be studied and the archival materials available are barely touched. By 1876, Boston Public Library, founded in 1848, possessed over 280,000 books. The Athenaeum had grown from 21,000 in 1828 to 105,000 in the same year. The movement for college education in America, involving the foundation of about three dozen important colleges in the first half of the 19th century, could not but have its effect, either directly or indirectly, via the aspirations of benefactors. Of the older foundations, Yale's collection also nearly quadrupled in the 25 years after 1835. Harvard College Library contained perhaps 300,000 books by 1875, having trebled in 20 years. This expansion concentrated attention on in institutional libraries, on their exp expenditure and on their growth, as well as on their purpose. The Bureau of Education report on American libraries in 1876 contributed to the debate as to the purpose of various institutional libraries by emphasizing that the task of repositories of the National Printed Archive should be one not of college libraries but of public collections. In practice, as in England, a mixed economy has grown up of public and university collections fulfilling this purpose. But it implied also a role for university and college libraries fundamentally different from what had become ac accepted at Oxford and at Cambridge. The question for London, founded only in 1826, doesn't arise. That the collections should be regularly weeded out at the same time as they were being added to. In other words, in all these various respects, the position in American libraries was more varied and complex than the university libraries at Oxford and at Cambridge, to which I now at last come. Like the British Museum, neither the Bodleian Library nor Cambridge University Library envisaged disposing of unwanted titles of which they had no other copy. Although at the beginning of the century, Cambridge had not been averse to accepting credit from a local bookseller instead of the novels that were sent up from London under the terms of the Copyright Act, and in 1817, had actually invited publishers to travel up to Cambridge to collect their unwanted pulp literature that had been sent up. The position by mid-century had changed dramatically. Penitz's example at the British Museum, a better awareness of the national published output, thanks to the gradual emergence of a properly organized book trade bibliography, and the lessening of the isolation formerly enjoyed by Cambridge from metropolitan, let alone national, opinion quite apart from local factors such as changes in the theory of university education and greater diversity in the curriculum, as well as the straightforward demand by members of the university and their friends to read the novels in the university library, all contributed to fundamental changes in the nature of the collection at Cambridge and its relation with other libraries in the second and third quarters of the 19th century. Its function as a part of the National Printed Archive the repository of received knowledge was further emphasized by its periodic appearance in parliamentary reports, especially in the Parliamentary Committee on Public Libraries of 1849 and the Cambridge University Commission of 1852. Standards of comparison that were forced on it, not only by educational reformers within the university, but also by government bureaucracy. Panitzi's disparaging comparison of the unreformed British Museum Library with the Bibliothèque Nationale in 1836, and his opinions on foreign public libraries compared with the British Museum, appealed to national pride. But they also symptomized an attitude and approach that had not been widely practiced hitherto. When in 1832, one observer in Cambridge wrote of his ambition for the university library to resemble the university library in Göttingen, his remarks were doubly serious. They implied both a reform in the library's collecting policy to encompass all knowledge, in Heine's words, a comprehensive collection of the most important writings of all times and in all nations in all branches of learning, and also the acceptance of new critical standards imposed from elsewhere. 
So, faced with demands for ever greater provision of books for the university set on expanding itself in every way, new laboratory space, new attention to teaching, new staff, eight professors were founded at, Cam eight professorships were founded at Cambridge between 1851 and 1870, compared with only three in the previous half century. New attention to examinations, quite apart from a newly established and acknowledged place in the National Library System. Cambridge University Library was in a not altogether enviable position. Its book stocks, while good in some areas, had been neglected in others. No thought had been given to the purpose of its early printed books. And despite the introduction of a library tax in 1825, which elicited a contribution from every resident member of the university towards the book fund, and several special purchase funds whose fortunes wavered with the economy, its budget seemed too limited to allow very opulent book buying. The Library Syndicate, the management committee for the library, was given power to exchange duplicates in March 1857. And of the opportunity, even need, for such transactions, Henry Bradshaw, the great librarian at Cambridge in the 1870s and 80s, had no doubt. The only way to open to us of completing the collection of specimens of early typography. And the number of duplicates which we possess offers unusual facilities, he noted in 1859. Three years later, he initiated the exchange of one of the library's three copies of Caxton's Royal Book with a copy of the Nova Rhetorica of Lowenchester Soana, printed at St. Albans shortly after it had been written at Cambridge in the 1470s. As part of the arrangement, Bradshaw also received a sum of money from Thomas Boone, the London bookseller, and with this unearmarked cash, was able to concentrate for the first time properly on early printed books purchases included with this spare cash, the 1508 Statius, the Bamberg Missile of 1506, the Ratisbon Missile of 1515, as well as a polyglot Pentateuch printed at Constantinople in 1547. These books were modest enough, and when in 1868, a few months after becoming librarian, he presented 68 incunables to the library, his gift reflected the fact that for several years, he had effectively been buying for the library out of his own pocket. The library's financial embarrassment, made the more acute by Bradshaw's anxiety to buy ever more adventurously among early printed books. To many observers, the library seemed grossly overcrowded. The solution of the librarian in the mid-1860s to, to the first problem was simple. Like his predecessor as librarian, he preferred to buy second-hand books at auction, preferably in large lots, and so avoid having having to pay what he regarded as booksellers' unjust profits. But he seemed irresistibly attracted towards large miscellaneous lots where the average price per volume might be lower. Unwilling to waste space or money in providing for unnecessary books, in 1855, the library syndicate requested a list of duplicates, and they repeated their request two years later. The suggestion made before he was elected librarian came most probably from the mayor himself. In 1857, the syndics had in view other libraries in Cambridge as suitable customers. But the mayor was less parochially minded. Acting with characteristic zeal, he took the opportunity instead to develop the collection in ways that had not perhaps been envisaged as the library had not sold duplicates in any quantity since 1742, when it disposed of the residue of the 30,000 books from the so-called Royal Library, given by George I when he presented the library of the Bishop of Ely. There was little resemblance then between Mayer's renewed attack on the shelves and Bradshaw's painstaking negotiations over early English incunables of a few years earlier. Unwanted purchases, Many of them bought at auction, only very recently, and dating from the 17th century onwards, appeared at a series of general anonymous sales at Puttick and Simpson, the London auctioneers, between June 1864 and August 1865. The results of these sales were not particularly encouraging. Labbe's Nova Bibliotheca, probably after Stevens had failed to find a buyer, was knocked down at one shilling. 
15 volumes of the historical register from 1716 to 1730, two shillings. More horrifying, Linnaeus illustrated Fortus Clifortianus, Amsterdam, 1737, one shilling. Of the 30 lots offered in August 1865, the last of the series, only three fetched as much as three shillings and sixpence. And the fashion for early scientific books not having properly emerged yet, the first edition of Newton's Principia, sixpence. Nevertheless, by March 1865, the exercise had rid the library of 1,280 items it regarded as useless. A year later, the figure had risen much further as a result of a series of transactions with Henry Stevens. There was a rather more benefit to the library and considerably more interest. partially informed observer in England, Henry Stevens must have seemed an unlikely figure as a bookseller of international standing. With no proper London premises, he operated from a hotel room in Trafalgar Square. Baked or manipulated storage space from other firms, and instead of issuing catalogues regularly in England, sold his stock through the auction houses when he could not sell by private negotiation. His name was already well familiar at Cambridge, however. In 1856, when passing a bill for 13 volumes of the Statutes of Virginia, published in New York in 1823, and for 16 volumes of Samuel Hazard's Register of Pennsylvania, that seemed more than usually heavy, only about a pound or so, the then librarian noted for the benefit of the Vice-Chancellor, Mr. Stevens explained the large amount of these charges as being occasioned by the scarcity of these works. He's been about two years in finding them, and his former charges have been extremely reasonable. And I've only found one bill so far that before that from Henry Stevens, which was a large bill of a very different kind. Meanwhile, it had become well established long ago in London and at Oxford that Stevens was the man for your transatlantic trade. I'm dosing the British Museum and the Bodleian Library with American books to their heart's content wrote to Francis Parkman in 1846. His connection with Cambridge, formed somewhat later, proved equally beneficial. It had apparently flagged a little, however, by 1864, when Mayer was elected librarian. And so Henry Stevens wrote to offer his services. Having supplied the British Museum, he wrote, and the Bodleian Library for the past 15 years, with the greater proportion of their American books, and having on hand a large stock of historical and other standard works of this class. I should be happy to treat with you for an American order, large or small, for the university library. The stock which I have in hand being mainly duplicates of the books supplied to the British Museum and the Bodleian. I shall gladly, in these war times, put the prices very low, that is, for half price or less. If you are disposed to consider the matter and perhaps treat with me, I will someday next week, or whenever convenient for you, come down to Cambridge for a day to meet you. Mayor, ever anxious for a bargain, swallowed the bait. And within a few years, few days, the two men moved quickly on to discuss not so much outright purchases, even at civil war prices, as exchanges for Cambridge duplicates in a scheme where, at first, Stevens hoped for more than Mayer had mentioned. I hope, wrote Stevens, Mr. Bradshaw will part with some of his, he seems to know them so well I cannot use any other pronoun, Caxton's, winking to words, and other very rare early English books. I can help him to others perhaps equally rare, and so mutually benefit ourselves, that is, our libraries. However high his hopes, the outcome of Stephen's visit to Cambridge a few days later put the matter in Mayer's perspective. Stevens could not, in the eyes of the Cambridge librarians, offer overwhelming reasons for their disposing of Caxtons. While Mayer himself was far more anxious to dispose of more recent flotsam. But in two days at Cambridge, spent largely in reading through the library catalogues, Stevens established for himself what he needed to know, 
and went away with some idea of the likely extent of duplicates amongst existing collections. He returned to London anxious to proceed with all possible speed. My orders, he said, at present are large, but in these days of high exchange and war, there is no certainty how long a time may elapse before they are countermanded. I ought, therefore, to lose no time. It did not concern Mayer that the American Civil War had cost Stephen dear, or that James Lennox had more or less stopped buying from him. By the spring of 1864, Stevens was under severe financial pressure and was staving off his creditors with a complicated series of arrangements. Nor did Stevens explain that his present large orders were not least the result of having returned in January 1864 from a visit to America with the agency for a new library at Hartford in Connecticut under his belt. The first librarian of the Watkinson Library, a free reference library created under the will of David Watkinson, had been appointed only in January 1863. But by the following August, the librarian had prepared a de detailed guide to his needs, as Marion Clark has described in her history of the collection. For Stevens, Nothing could have been better timed than Mayer's readiness to dispose of unwanted Cambridge duplicates, many of which could not fail to appeal to a new reference library, while at the same time he was able to channel no small number of books towards the British Museum. His first selection was not numerous, but it gave some sense of his seriousness of purpose. A run of the London Gazette from 1768 to 1818. Bale's Dictionary. Gravius Thesaurus, the ten volumes of Pearson's Critique Sacri. Together, hardly surprisingly, they covered only part of the cost of the books Cambridge had taken from Stevens. And so Stevens pressed, pressed his point further. To give you a better idea of what I can use, I've jotted down on the enclosed slips a few hundred volumes, most of which you have, no doubt, duplicates. The list is brief but no doubt will be understood by you. Of the Church Fathers, I can, till the order is countermanded, use any of the good editions. And so of the four of the great polyglot Bibles, I can take also on almost any, count, any number of English topography or county or town histories. I've no idea how much you can turn out. I'm ready to take 500 or 1,000 pounds worth at once to give you good standard books in exchange at low cash prices. Stephen's list of desiderata is in fact of no small interest, for it gives some hint of the aspirations of a general library founded with uh, some imagination, and constructed on some scale, and intended for the needs of a single community. As a genre, library shopping lists and booksellers' wants lists of out-of-print books are scarcer than their bills, which necessarily list only what has actually been found, the achievement rather than the aspirations. But it's possible to argue further and to point out the essential traditional humanist nature of Stephen's guide. It's arguable that the quest for Americana by, his, his, by historians, booksellers, and book collectors was the result of a compromise between the Benthamite approach to the printed word, which prefers only that which leads to measurable scientific or social advance, and the older liberal view expressed by Rufus Choate in the controversy over the purpose of the Smithsonian Institute, when he echoed Fisher Ames' claim that Gibbon's decline and fall could not have been written in America because the country lacked the bibliographical resources. Insofar that the mid-19th century quest for Americana by which was understood the history of America itself, helped to establish the political and social identity of the country. It had overtones that could be justified to the most utilitarian critic of the generality of musty old books. It's thus worth emphasizing that Stevens had gone beyond the boundary for his customers and asked for literature and antiquarian theology as well on this occasion. With the exception of debris, the 1662 Laws of Virginia, and Simon Grinaeus Novus Orbis, he specified the 1537 edition, and one or two others, Stevens had put on his list not so much Americana 
as more general books from the Complutensian Polyglot Bible to the 1557 edition of Thomas More. His list also included the 1476 and 1486 Bibles, um, the major 16th century theologians, Ducange, Galen, Grafton's Chronicle, Grotius, Hardwick's State Papers, Holbein, Inigo Jones, Ben Jonson, Leibniz, John Lidgett, Montfaucon, William Prynne, besides the topographical books mentioned in his letter. Stevens was in some haste, but the deadline set by his American customers, uh, the, the Watkinson Library, in other words, unknown to Mayer, of course, came and went without mishap. And so he could proceed to more leisurely effect. In July 1864, he was asking again about Montfaucon and offering a set of American government records from 1786 to 1863 in about 1,500 volumes, similar to a set made up from the Bodleian a little earlier. That summer, too, Stevens paid a second visit to Cambridge in quest of a lot of duplicates and returned to London so well satisfied that he wrote to Bodley's librarian almost in a state of rapture. I spent three weeks in the library at Cambridge and, as you say, found heaps of sport. I have relieved the library of nearly three tons of duplicates and am able to supply it with many standard American and other books in exchange. Such sport is a godsend to the library, and I only hope my venture will strengthen me. He went also on also to have sport at Bodley in the next few years. Well, the prices that he paid were fixed by Mayer and his staff at Cambridge. And after some repair, the books were shipped off to America, leaving Stevens to write back to Cambridge. I've had three tons of your duplicates, and I think five more will fill me for the present. His trawl had reached many corners. Besides unwanted purchases from recent auctions, including a volume containing Roger Ascham's Toxophilus of 1571 and Schoolmaster of 1570 at one pound ten shillings, and Wolfgang Lazius' De Gentium Aliquot Legrationibus Libri Duodecim, Basel 1572 at one shilling, the library sold many books that had been in it for two centuries. Not all the titles on Stephen's wants list could be provided, hardly surprisingly. But the library did dispense with the 1557 edition of Thomas More, almost certainly bequeathed by Richard Holdsworth, Master of Emmanuel College in 1649, preferring to keep the copy given by King George I. The so-called Royal Library copies given in 1715 went of Rymer's Federa, Wharton's Anglia Sacra, Plot's Natural History of Staffordshire, Thoroton's Nottinghamshire, Leicester's Cheshire, the 1616 edition of James I, the first edition of 1694 of George Fox's journal, the dictionaries of John Barrett, 1580, Cotgrave, 1611, Robert Estienne, both the 1543 and 1573 editions, and Calipinus, 1667, besides 17th century editions of many of the church fathers. The earlier collections in the library since before 1715 lost books on a similar scale. The provenance of the books mattered as little to Stevens as it did to Mayer. It was enough simply that the books seemed unnecessary to Cambridge and desirable to Stevens. Among Americana alone, Stevens could count in his selection the nine parts of Debris' voyages, not in other words quite complete, for which he paid 15 pounds. Delight's Novus Orbis of 1633, the original edition of Hernandez Materia Medica of the New World, the Laws of Virginia that he had specifically asked for, Peter Martyr's De Orbe Novo of 1587, 1626 edition of Purchase's Pilgrimage, and the account published in 1633 of Thomas James's account of uh, Search for a New Northwest Passage. The end of the year, saw the library nevertheless still in debt to Stevens. By February 1865, he was ready to reopen negotiations, but he hesitated at first until he knew the fate of the duplicates exported the previous autumn. Only one duplicate, a 16th century law book, went, with Steve, went to Stevens that spring in 1865, but the summer was more active. Many of the more expensive duplicates that he wanted, he had already selected, 
but there remained more than enough. In 1864, for example, he had taken few classical authors, but he now found dozens, the earliest being two copies of Aldous's 1521 Livy at seven shillings for the two. Plantin's 1575 Virgil, with commentary by Scaliger, went for two shillings and sixpence. Heinsius Hesiod, 1603, for one shilling. The collection by George I could also count the loss of Lapé's Nova Bibliotheca. The editions of Strabo, published in Paris in 1620 and Amsterdam in 1707. The 1631 edition of Selden's Titles of Honour. The 1590 edition of Camden's Britannia, as well as Timothy Bright's pioneering work of psychiatric observation. Treatise of Melancholy, 1586, which was pillaged by Shakespeare for Hamlet. Inevitably, there were mistakes. Both the first and second edition of George Ruggles' Ignoramus were sold. But the second edition of this, the most famous of the Cambridge College plays, was no duplicate at all, and the library still has no replacement. I think they're both in Albany now. I've got to write and ask whether they've got them. The Plato Homer of 1542 to 1550 was irretrievably split up by the sale of only two of the four volumes set. Stevens also managed to add a few more books of direct American interest. The neither Jacob d'Arcosta's De Daturi Novi Orbis, Cologne, 1596, at seven shillings, nor the two copies of Georg Horn's De Originibus Americanis, The Hague, 1652, two shillings each, were excessively priced and indeed proved to have been significantly undervalued by Mayer, as Stevens continued exhortations to American collectors and libraries not to ignore books in languages other than English took lasting effect. This proved to be the end of the operation. Stevens sent these latter books of 1865 chiefly to the British Museum and to the State Library of New York at Albany. By the time of his next annual report, Mayer could announce that the library had disposed of 1,240 duplicates to Stevens alone, and that 1,139 new modern American volumes had been procured from him. The supervision of the whole had been placed in the hands of Mayer and of Bradshaw jointly. But however appreciative Bradshaw could be of the library's history, he had not prevented the departure of books which had a strong claim to remain. This influence may perhaps be seen in the fact that so few early 16th century books and no incunabula were disposed of to Stevens. But Mayer was unsympathetic to the claims either of history or of the future effect. The exchange he wrote with Mr. Stevens was a drill for our whole staff teaching us how to receive, dispatch, and invoice large masses of books, making us ransack every part of the library, giving quickness and a sure eye in the weary labor of collation. The most interesting discovery was a presentation copy of Lysidas with an entire line and two other corrections in Milton's hand. This had been standing on the open shelves, inviting the curious collector. Every duplicate sold has passed about six times under my eye. No book has been sold that differed in any part from the copy kept, or that contained any autograph or note of interest. Most of the books sold were of an unsaleable class, in bad condition, many imperfect, some rotten, worm-eaten, or otherwise damaged. Mr. Stevens would have lost by his bargain if he had received no money at all. In fact, the library had to top up the Stevens bill and give him some cash as well. Well, since this was his annual report, Mayer was pleading something of a special case. It seems unlikely that Stevens was, in fact, in such an unhealthy position at the end. Bradshaw's own attitude to duplicates was a straightforward one. And the fact that no more major exchanges with Stevens were engineered after he became librarian in 1867 it tokens only that Stevens had perhaps other game to hunt, and that Bradshaw's tendency to laziness in routine matters, quite apart from his extraordinary gifts of procrastination, were insuperable obstacles in serious discussion. In their attachment to early printed books, Bradshaw and Stevens remained firm friends, but in their impatience to achieve results of whatever kind, 
Mayer and Stevens had more characteristics in common. Bradshaw saw through the sales of several duplicate incunables in the 1860s that he had not apparently been directly involved in the negotiations of 1864 to 5 with Stevens, though his assent to the scheme would have been essential, even if only tacitly. Stevens gifted to him in October 1864 of a fragment of the 1482 Caxton Chronicles of England may or may not have been a douceur, more than a reminder to you that I have been in Cambridge. In any case, Bradshaw passed it on to the library two years later. Stevens need not, need not have feared. While there is a very large difference between selling carefully selected duplicate incunables, Bradshaw made mistakes as well. But as Bradshaw had done for a few years earlier, and unwanted general stock, duplicate or otherwise, as mayor organized with Stevens, Bradshaw was not likely to be recalcitrant. When in 1870 he presented his collection of Irish books to the library, he wrote specifically that I have no views about the sacredness of duplicates or the necessity of keeping such a collection intact. We have in fact kept the collection intact. His willingness to leave no embarrassment for the library in accepting duplicates that it did not need or want was praiseworthy. And in fact, the library does not seem to have found any need to get rid of some of the books. As usual, though, in the sale of any duplicate, there is room for debate. Few libraries, in fact, have very much opportunity for maneuver when considering the sale of duplicates or unwanted stock. Mayer and Bradshaw had no illusions about the need of their library to grow, even if the building could expand only slowly in their wake. They lacked both space and money for Bradshaw to develop, arrange, make properly secure the library's manuscripts and early printed books, and for Mayer to extend the modern collections. Despite the defensive note of Mayer's annual report, there seemed to have been no voices raised in protest in the university at large at the wholesale dispersal through Stevens. But while there have been one or two noteworthy sales of duplicate early printed books since, there's been nothing on the same scale. Respect for foundation collections and donors may perhaps be a recent phenomenon, but it's supported by the more measurable demands of post-Macario and post-Hinman scholarship, which sets value on multiple, not just duplicate copies. It makes it all the easier to hesitate. Stevens and Bradshaw remained in correspondence virtually until they died within a few days of each other in 1886. But their interest turned away, as I've said, from duplicates to more general questions and dealings. Yet, had they and Mayer not acted as they did in those hectic months in 1864 to 65, the collection of American books at Cambridge would probably now look very much the poorer. The demands of mid-19th century America and mid-Victorian Britain were not always the same but few did more than Henry Stevens to translate them on this occasion to each other's advantage. <laughs>